Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Let's go to the word here. Romans chapter 3, as I mentioned, verse 21. Let's read verses 21 through 26 together. There are various passages in Scripture that people would say, we're on holy ground right now. All of Scripture, of course, is is God-breathed. All of it is living. But there are some times when you come to certain passages and you just know this is really, really important. And so let's read it along together and seek to have a heart that understands that here this morning. We read beginning in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Let's pray once more. Father, thank You for Your Word. You exalt it above Your own name. Lord, You've given it to us. And it's powerful, Lord. It has the power through Your Spirit to transform hearts and minds. And I pray that's what would happen here this morning. For each of us, Lord, once again, that we leave this place different, having had an encounter with You and Your Word. Lord, we do give You thanks for it. We praise You for it. Bless our time now, Lord. And again, give us understanding, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, here as we come to this amazing passage of Scripture, and we'll get through the end of chapter 3 here this morning as we prepare to take communion, we come to verse 21. And verse 21 serves as a turning point in this letter. For the better part of 63 verses up to this point, Paul has been making the case for mankind's sinfulness. He's exposed man's wickedness. Writing in in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 3, Paul said, There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's pretty absolute, right? I mean, what what Paul makes clear here, and this is an accurate assessment of mankind's sinful condition, is that together we have become unprofitable, unfit for use. There are none who are in right standing before God apart from Jesus Christ. That's a hopeless condition. This, This word here, and we considered this briefly last week, but this idea of unprofitable, unfit for use, often in the Greek language, this was a word that was used to evaluate or assess the condition of produce. Sounds kind of funny, but last week I gave to you the analogy of the rotten fruit, the rotten vegetables, right? And some of you even texted me afterwards and you sent me a picture of the rotten fruit that you found in your fruit bowl at home, right? And to some of you, I replied, just go ahead and leave it there for a couple of days. It'll get better. And you think to yourself, no, it won't. It won't get better. My own sermon analogy came, came to life this last week as it happened to me again. 
And we go through a pretty decent amount of produce, but sometimes it turns, and I'm walking through the kitchen, and wham, it hit me. I know that smell. And it was nasty. I never for a second thought, oh, here this rotten thing is. I'll keep it around with me for a while. It'll get better. But sadly and foolishly, that's sometimes our own thought as it pertains to our sinful condition. I'll hang on to it. It'll get better. No, it won't. Paul says, there's none of us who seek after God. We've all turned aside. It's a hopeless condition. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 writes, At the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see what Paul has effectively done to this point in the letter? If we take what he has written seriously, he as a great orator, is almost arguing a case in a court of law. He's closed his arguments, and we, the defendants, are standing before a holy, perfect, and righteous judge. The verdict has come back, and we are guilty. We're guilty. There's no defense. There's no excuse. As Romans 3.19 says, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Friends, it is my prayer this morning that we would take this reality seriously. Four weeks ago, I told you that we would spend the better part of three weeks talking about sin. What a fun journey it's been. As we've made our way verse by verse through Romans 1, 2, and 3, and we've laughed a little bit, of course, as I've reminded us in colorful ways how wretched we can be. But I wonder, how seriously do we take our sin? How much do we regularly reflect on what it is that Jesus has done for us? This is Communion Sunday. We make a commitment to at least once a month, if not more, but at least once a month on the first Sunday of the month, we are going to take communion together as instructed in Scripture. And today is a perfect passage for us to consider as we ready our hearts to take communion. You could consider the entirety of the message today to really just be our communion service. Because what we encounter in the Word here today is such a foundational passage for our faith, such a foundational passage for an understanding of the Gospel, and for an understanding of what it is that we're doing as we take communion, as we take the bread and we take the cup, And we consider what it is that Christ has done for us. Amongst us today, here in person perhaps, as well as online, are two kinds of people. That's all. There are those who are saved, and there are those who have surrendered their life to Christ. And if you've surrendered your life to Christ, it means that today you're invited to take communion and to participate in this. But if not, if you are of the group that has rejected Jesus Christ... Those who are saved and those who are not, if you are one who has rejected Jesus Christ, well then, today is to be the day of salvation. For you to no longer remain in that condition. And so for those that have have given their lives to Christ today, you will be invited to take communion. And I pray that this passage and the words that we'll consider today will serve as a wonderful reminder of what it is that God has done for you. And for you to then leave here with greater appreciation for the gospel. But for those that have thus far rejected the truth of the gospel, you're going to hear again today what it is that God has done for you. And I would plead with you, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the promise of eternal life with Him. Without Jesus, you are lost and without hope. 
No matter what this world tells you about what it can offer and how it can satisfy or what it is that you can do to help yourself, you're lost without him. Paul's made this clear. But here's the thing, and as we build up here then to verse 21, we understand that Paul's made the case for our guilt. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves just sort of wallowing in it, right? A woe is me in my sinful condition. And indeed, it is just that. We ought to look at, especially for the believer, to look at your time before Christ with a sense of, oh Lord, how wretched I was. Or for those that maybe the Holy Spirit is, is with you, drawing you unto repentance, you're having a greater and greater awareness of your sinful condition and you find yourself saying, Lord, I don't want this anymore. But it's a terrible thing if we just remain in that place. The amazing thing is that God has done something about it. And as we come here into verse 21, though he's made uh, the case for our guilt, and that through our own works and through the deeds of the law and our own attempts at righteousness, all of it's failed, that none of us will be justified before God through our own efforts, he then comes to this glorious turning point. Here in verses 21 through 26, as I've alluded to already, we encounter perhaps some of the most important verses in Scripture. As he begins with the two words, but now. But now, like the beautiful sunrise, after a storm-filled, destructive night, these two words shift our perspective and bring us from despair to hope. As Paul continued to write to that church in Ephesus where he had said, you were once a far off, alienated, without hope, He goes on in verse 13 also to say, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or to the church in Corinth, he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, and 20, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And friends, the Spirit is declaring to us still today, you had no hope. You were lost. But now. But now what? But now the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. To this we should say, praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. After coming to an understanding that we are guilty, condemned before God, that nothing we can do in and of ourselves could accomplish anything, that there's no works, no keeping of the law that can save us, not our our righteousness, but, but God's righteousness, His righteousness has been revealed. How is it that it's been revealed? How has God's righteousness been revealed to a lost world? Well, it was witnessed, Paul says, by the law and the prophets. That is, that throughout the Old Testament history, since the very beginning of creation, it all pointed to this. From the fall in the garden and God's immediate act of redemption to the work of the prophets, to the function and purpose of the law, all of it was pointing to one thing. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it's all been pointing to. Everything throughout history has been pointing to Jesus. It was all pointing to Him. Listen guys, Jesus is the but now. He's this, he is the amazing turning point. Jesus is the sun rising in the morning that's piercing the darkness. Jesus is the hope. Jesus was and is the turning point in earth's story, and he's the turning point in my story. What about yours? 
Is Jesus the turning point in your life? Jesus and the righteousness of God. And here, here's the wonderful thing, as we've talked about from the very beginning of Romans, all the truths we get in this book. The things that Paul helps us to understand, the doctrines of the faith. Jesus and the righteousness of God. That is a right standing before Him. Righteousness is about a right standing before God. It means we're no longer condemned by our sin. Paul says it's available to you through faith in Jesus Christ. As it is to all, the second part of verse 22, it's to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, it's often said the ground is level at the foot of the cross. What does that mean? That we're all the same. Yes, we have our different experiences. Yes, we have our different backgrounds. Yes, we have our different stories to tell. But at the end of the day, we are all lost in need of a Savior. Paul's established this. Whether the worst of sinners, and you know, the fact of the matter is there are, there are people in life that we, in, in our own judgmental way, can find ourselves going, well, that's a sinner. Because so much of what they're engaging in is outward and visible, and you just know, hey, that's wrong. And so whether it's the person who's just the hedonistic in pursuit of all of the desires of the flesh, or if it's the moralist, the person who thinks that a simple good deed constitutes a good heart, or if it's the religious person who thinks that their religious routine will save them. Oh, I go to church every Sunday. Isn't that good enough? Paul says it doesn't matter. We're all the same. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need Him. Every one of us sitting here right now, whether we recognize it or not, need Jesus. Amen? And friends, listen for a moment. I know I often talk about this, but I think it's really important, and it's increasingly important, that, that those who are saved, the church, the capital C church, must be so careful how we handle ourselves before those who are lost. Certainly from the standpoint of just being a, a right example of considering our own behavior such that as Paul's already addressed, our behavior would not cause others to blaspheme God. But I think, and I don't know that I could say even more than that, but, but certainly as a very important understanding of who we all are and the fact that we all need Jesus is how the church looks at those who are lost. I feel like far too often the church is expecting different behavior from those who are unsaved. Far too often we look at those who are unsaved and we expect them to act like they're saved. And why would they? Why would anybody who has not surrendered their life to Christ act like they have? But so often it's the fault of the church to go and condemn all these various behaviors and somehow think that it's our responsibility to change the behavior. To tell them what they're doing is wrong. Yet they don't have Jesus. How in the world are they going to know it? How in the world would they even change? How would they be transformed? Absent the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Listen, we're not responsible for going out and changing people one by one. Changing their behaviors and changing their, their perceptions and changing how they think about things and changing the decisions that they make. We're responsible for giving them Jesus. And He'll do that work. If we remember rightly who we all are, that we're all in need of Jesus, and that for those that are saved, their life has been transformed by Him and only because of Him, then give people Jesus and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Amen? Let's just tell people 
about who he is, about our but now moment. Paul goes on to say, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We were once, positionally speaking, standing before God condemned by our own sin. But now, in Christ, his righteousness is upon us and we are justified. That is amazing truth. So not only is Paul saying the righteousness of Christ is upon you through faith in Him, but not only that you're justified, that is that God has now declared that you are righteous. He's made it official, if you will. He's removed the condemnation and the guilt and the penalty of sin that was upon you through faith. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us an incredibly encouraging truth that says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation? Are you kidding me? Lord, do you know who I am? Do you, you, do you know my heart? Listen, guys, I'll tell you this a million times over, and I've said it plenty of times to plenty of people. If you knew my heart, you'd throw me out of here. Plain and simple. I don't deserve to stand here. I don't, I don't deserve anything. Did you do it because I deserved it? What God has done through His Son Jesus, did He do it because you deserved it? No. Did He do it because you earned it? No. Scripture says He did it freely by His grace. It was His unmerited favor towards you. It was a gift. That's incredible. That's our God. That he would do it freely by his grace. Jesus came, it says, and he redeemed you. So not only is his righteousness upon you, his righteousness has become ours. Not only have we been justified, declared righteous, no longer guilty, but we've been redeemed. That is, God has regained possession of us who had us. Sin. You're a slave to sin. But in exchange for a payment, you were purchased back. And what was that payment? It was Jesus. He did it. Righteous, justified, redeemed. These are truths that we need to familiarize ourselves with over and over and over again because we can, can become sort of uh, immune to it. It can become just these, these truths that it's sort of like, yeah, I understand that. I get that. And we can come to church on a Sunday and, oh, it's communion Sunday. We're going to go through the process. We're going to take this, drink this. Yep, it's just all part of the process. This is what we do as a Christian. Or we can actually sit back and go, holy smokes, Lord. Look what you've done. And I would submit to you this morning that unless grace has absolutely invaded your life, then you're not going to take these things seriously. And, and, and the degree to which we do, the degree to which we take our sins seriously, the degree to which we, we find ourselves going, Lord, this is overwhelming what it is that you've done for me, should be in part a measure of, of where we're at spiritually. That is to say, and I don't mean to be too strong on this, but if none of what I'm sharing here this morning moves you in any way, you should be evaluating where your heart's at. And not because it's my words or my attempt at passionately presenting it, but just reading through the Scripture. Does it do something to you? Verse 25, here Paul continues saying, it's, it's Jesus, Jesus was that payment, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness. It was Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation. You guys use that word every day, don't you? 
As a pastor, I just, I say it ten times a day, propitiation, you know. It's a big word. It's like, what does that mean, right? This is the same Greek word that's used in the Old Testament translation for mercy seat. Some of your Bibles may read specifically that. It may be translated that way, and I think it's a good translation. The mercy seat. This is the golden cover on the Ark of the Covenant. It's the place where the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice seven times to appease God's wrath on sin. The mercy seat is the same place where God would manifest His presence. We read in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22, God says, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Pastor and commentator Kent Hughes writes, The, the ark contained the law of the Ten Commandments, and the ceremony portrayed the fact that mankind had broken the law, causing a rift between themselves and their holy God. But through the shedding of blood, this place of judgment became the place of reconciliation. In Christ's death, the demands of God for justice against a sinful race are fully met, leaving God free to be merciful to those who formerly merited only judgment. Praise the Lord. Friends, Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. The cross is a demonstration of that, and it shows his righteousness. And the fact that Jesus has appeased God's wrath, which then allows God to be merciful toward us, is something that we should rejoice in. Because as much as you may be inclined to think of God the Father as an earthly father, and sometimes we do that, do we not? Many a people struggle in their walk because their perception of God the Father is rooted in their understanding of an earthly father. And listen, every earthly father will let you down. They will. And, 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 and as earthly fathers, we are prone to fits of wrath and times of mercy. And oftentimes in direct correlation to the behavior of the child. And so what we then do with that is we find ourselves based off of how we're doing and how we're serving and whether or not we've been struggling or maybe we screwed up a little bit, maybe we stumbled and we find ourselves then going, God must now be mad at me. God's wrath is probably upon me. Maybe, maybe now I'm beyond his mercy and his grace. He, can't, he couldn't continue to just be so forgiving towards me, to be so merciful towards me. Now I'm, I, I, and we find ourselves back in a place of condemnation and what condemnation causes us to do is to run from God. Please note that if you ever are trying to discern between condemnation and conviction, condemnation causes you to run from God, conviction causes you to run to Him. Conviction is a good thing. But condemnation, when we find ourselves in that place and say, okay, I've got to back away, now God's clearly got to be mad at me, or He's punishing me. We adopt that mentality based off of our understanding of earthly relationships, but those are relationships that happen on the horizontal. This is a vertical relationship, and it's far different. And when we begin to think that way, and we begin to believe that way, we begin to discount and even forget about what it is that Jesus is our mercy seat and what it is that he has accomplished. Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God. He took it. He did it. And now God the Father is free to be merciful towards you. And you need not fear Him. And you need not fear some punitive punishment for your behavior. It doesn't mean that we can go on freely in sin. There's still consequences of sin. But rest assured that consequences of sin are more of a form of discipline from a good Father who seeks to change and transform us, not to punish us. And some of you, I believe, need to hear that this morning. 
that you allow your past to continue to come back and convince you and allow the enemy to convince you that God's mad at you, that he's angry with you, that he's punishing you. And if that were the case, then that means that Jesus didn't finish the work. And scripture proclaims anything but that. The remainder of, the verse tw- of verse 25 tells us that before this, that is before Jesus and the work of the cross, God in his forbearance had passed over the sins that were previously committed. And so what that tells us is God with a view of the cross was being patient. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 tells us that his kindness leads to repentance. And so God demonstrating kindness was intending to lead people to a place of repentance. But the problem is, and the question we should ask is, how can, how can God be a holy and righteous judge if there is no justice? There must be justice. We all have an understanding of that. Enter in verse 26. He did this to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so you see, he is able, because of Jesus and the work of the cross, to be both just, exacting punishment for the consequences of sin, but also the justifier, having done it himself on behalf of others. He has done it all. He's done it all. It's all a work of him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him how through faith through faith through belief in what it is that he's done for you the fact of the matter is you couldn't do it you still can't do it and so when you find yourself trying to still earn god's favor listen if this morning you said oh they have a need in calvary kids maybe if i'll do that god will be happy with me then don't do it just stop right there you can't do various things even still to earn his favor the fact of the matter is even when in the very beginning when you were in sin dead in sin unfit for use and you finally came to a place the holy spirit with you drawing you unto repentance you come to that place of surrender and you gave your life to him in that moment you had it all you had it all and you have it all still christian And so anything that we do for the Lord is to be done from a place of just gratitude. Giving Him praise. Saying, Lord, where else could I go? What else could I do? All I want to do is serve You, Lord. It's through grace alone. Unmerited favor. Freely given. Grace alone. Through Christ alone. By faith alone. For God's glory alone. As we see in verse 27, Where is boasting then? Paul asks the wonderful question at this point as he goes from a place of just almost seemingly belaboring the point, helping us to see how wretched we are, then bringing us to, to, so he takes us low, okay? And then he brings us up and says, but now, look what God has done. And he's the one who's done it all. You couldn't earn it. You can't do it. He just loves you so much. It's a free gift of his grace. And so because of that, if you understand it rightly, you can say, God, you did it all. Praise God. It wasn't me, and you don't expect anything out of me. All I need to do is just believe in you and what it is that you've done for me. And so if I understand that clearly, then what can I boast in? Nothing. He says, where is boasting then? It's excluded. There is nothing you can boast in. 
You see, the one who recognizes that salvation comes through faith alone can boast in nothing other than Christ and his finished work upon the cross. And that's exactly what God wants, is for you and your life to give him glory. He goes on to say, by what law? Of works? And so you see, conversely here, the one who believes in works that lead to salvation, or even the complement that, that complement the work of salvation, ultimately believes in the gospel plus something else. And that's a false gospel. Paul says, no, but by the law of faith. You see, Paul writes in Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Stated differently, faith in Christ alone saves you. Works do not. Period. We'll consider more of that next week. Paul has a way of continually coming back to these various points as he makes his way throughout the letter. You're going to see these themes recurring. And you can rest assured whenever you see something more than once in Scripture, what should you do? Pay attention. It's there for a reason for us to understand this because how quickly do we tend in that direction to say somehow I can do it, somehow I can earn it, somehow I can achieve it. No, you can't. And it's a wonderful thing to rest in Jesus and to know that you can, Lord. I don't have to. You've got it. And so as we get into chapter 4 next week, we're going to consider this theme, faith alone. And we're going to see how this was evident even before the, even before the cross. We're going to see it in, in the likes of Abraham, how it was accounted to him for righteousness. Why? Because he believed. Because he had faith. He goes on to say, verse 29, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Remember, Paul is writing to uh, a, a church that's, that, that's comprised of, of Jew and Gentile, and he's been dealing with some of the things that come from both, the religiousness and the, and, and, and the, the paganism, and, and how does all this fit? Well, he's established clearly, we're all the same. And so he says, yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. He's going to do it in everybody. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And so Paul concludes in some respects to how he began, stating we're all the same. Friends, we're all guilty, in need of a Savior, and there is one God who has accomplished what no one else could, our salvation. And it's so important, especially as we look at passages like this, and I don't believe it's a stretch by any, by any stretch of the imagination. In a world that has throughout history been so divided, creating division along any line we could possibly think of, whether political, ethnic, religious, or otherwise, we could do well to see that we are all in need of a Savior. And that salvation comes through Christ alone. And we're called to believe in Him. It's passages like this, especially in, in our own country, where we continue to deal with such ethnic divide that for us is the church to look at this and realize, my goodness, we're all the same. Now, does our faith make void the law? Since it's not about works, does that then mean that the law is useless? No, rather it's confirmed. That is, it is still God's standard. It's still God's righteous standard that we, we, we recognize we don't measure up to. And, that's not, and it's not that God wants us to just see, oh, oh, look, see, you're just, you're just so bad. Rather, that when you evaluate yourself against my standard, it's going to point you to your need for a Savior. And so God's, God's standard, God's law, is absolutely valid. It's confirmed in that it points all of us to Jesus. 
Until that point, as Paul writes in Ephesians 4.13, we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Until unity, he'll continue to be at work. Now it's my hope, I'm going to invite the worship team forward to lead us in song as we take communion. It's my hope that our hearts have been readied for a time of communion here this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, Paul writes, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man so examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so I would say first today that our communion table is open to those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you're a believer here today, you are welcome to partake of communion. But if you have yet to give your life to Christ, then please refrain from taking, and I would respect you for doing so. But more than that, I would exhort you, why remain as you are? What is holding you back from saving faith in Christ? If you're here today or if you're watching online and, and you know I've never given my life to Christ, or you know what, I, 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 thought, that I, was, I thought that I knew the Lord, but in reality, my, my heart's been far from Him. I've never really surrendered. Well, that's the Spirit at work drawing you unto repentance. And here's the deal, you don't need an invitation from me, nor would I want my words to prompt a false conversion. It must be a work of the Spirit. But if you've, if you've heard this today, know that without Christ, you're lost. And you're without hope in this world. But now, through faith in Jesus, you can be made righteous, justified, redeemed, and in right relationship with God. And then with sins forgiven, you have the hope of eternity with Him and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life to empower and equip you to live for Him until He calls you home. To those who profess to know Jesus today, it's not my intent to create doubt for the sake of creating doubt. But I do feel compelled to simply challenge. While works do not save you, salvation should prompt works. And I wonder, is your life different since you professed to know Jesus? Do you desire His Word and more of it? Do you, do you long for, for holiness for your life to be changed. Some say, well, how am I ever going to be holy? How am I ever going to be perfect? Well, in glory you will be. And until then, Scripture compels us to pursue just that. To be holy as He is holy. To, to begin to uh, foster spiritual disciplines in our life that lead to a, to a changed life. To pursue Him. To, to, to want to, to know more of Him and, and to know more of His Word. To, to be actively crucifying our flesh daily. And so I would just ask you, be honest with yourself. Examine your heart. If that's not there, if, if as you read through Scripture, these, these truths don't, don't move you, they don't stir your heart then be willing today to say, well, Lord, maybe I've never truly surrendered my life to you. I say that because, as many of you well know, that was my own story. Years and years of religious routine, never truly having surrendered my life to Christ. And so let's take this seriously. Evaluate where you're at with that. Examine yourself this morning such that as you take of communion with great awareness, you would, with a grateful heart, recognize what it is that He's done for you. That as you hold the bread in your hand and, and as you take of the cup, you, you have a sense of, Lord Jesus, you did this for me. That the elements that we'll take of here this morning, they are not the literal 
body and blood of Jesus, but they are a symbol of the most profound thing in history. And that is you hold them in your hand to think, Lord, you gave your life for me. Your body was broken open for me. Your blood was shed for me. You came and lived a life that I could not live. You died a death that you didn't need to die. It was my death. And you did it for me, Lord. And I'm grateful. Let's pray. Father, as we begin now to participate in the taking of communion, Lord, it is certainly my prayer here this morning for each of us, myself included, that we do so with humble hearts. And humble does not mean condemned. Humble does not mean that, that Lord, we need to wallow in our sin. Humble is, is that, Lord, we recognize how great you are. We recognize what it is you've done for us, Lord. And that, no, we're not worthy. And no, we don't deserve it. And no, Lord, we couldn't earn it. But you love us so much that you did it for us. And so, Lord, that humbles us. There's nothing for us to boast in other than you and your goodness. And, Father, that we would take this morning, with grateful hearts, aware, Lord, of your sacrifice for us, that we take in a way that's pleasing, Lord, to you. So, so move in our hearts here this morning, Lord, to accomplish that work. And I'd pray for any of those, Lord, who might not yet know you, that just as we've discussed today, they would say, Lord Jesus, I know that you died for me, for my sins, and I ask for forgiveness. And I invite you into my life. I want you to sit on the throne of my heart. I want you, Lord Jesus, as we sang earlier, to be the center of it all, the center of my life. You just tell him. Give him thanks for what he's done. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Bless our time of communion here now. Once again, Lord, may it be pleasing to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.